Hey everybody, it's Jason. Welcome or welcome back to the Mosaic Church Podcast. At the end of this podcast, please take a moment to connect with us on social media. It's a great place to learn more and to see what's happening at Mosaic. Most importantly, hope the following message encourages and inspires you to take a new step on your faith journey. Enjoy. Well, good morning. It is uh, so good to see you guys. Uh, My name is Nick Jankowski, and I am excited to welcome you to our brand new teaching series called Kingdom Principles. And over the next five weeks, we are going to be examining a series of parables that are unique to the book of Luke. And simply understood, a parable is really just a tale using a common item to reinforce or illustrate something that is a deeper or more spiritual truth or lesson. And so Jesus, oftentimes when he taught, he used parables in his teaching to be able to teach his listeners both then and today more about ways to see the kingdom of God through the world. And so that is what we're going to be diving into over the next few weeks. However, before we jump in this morning, uh, what I'd like to ask us to do is just to pause for a moment, because as Michelle said accurately, it's been a long week, hasn't it? It's been a hard week for a lot of us. We've had to deal with grief and emotions on levels that we just don't deal with as human beings very often. And so I want to pause just for a moment and invite us just to pray just to breathe and invite the Spirit of God to be in this place, to speak to our hearts in the midst of what's gone on this week, but to hear accurately what he would have to say to us this morning. So, Father, we invite you into this place. God, we invite you to be here by the power of your Holy Spirit. May you fall on our hearts and minds. May you give us eyes to see and ears to hear, Lord, your word. Father, may we leave here today transformed by the interaction of your word, and may we reflect you more as we walk out into the world around us. We thank you for that, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I have a question for you this morning. How would you define success in life? Think about that for a moment. How would you define success in life? Because every one of us that is seated here today, whether it's something that we recognize out loud or not, has a metric or a way that we measure or define success in our life, myself included. In fact, for the longest time, I would say that one of the ways I've most clearly measured success or my accomplishments in life is through GoBots. Now, Judging by the silence in the room and the quizzical nature of the faces that I'm seeing looking back at me, a lot of you are probably thinking, what in the heck is a GoBot? Well, unless you grew up as a child in the 80s, there's probably a good reason why you've never heard of the GoBots. So let me in this moment just pause and introduce you to the wonder of GoBots. There you go. 
So now, whether you actually grew up as a child in the 80s or not, here's the truth. That should automatically remind you of a very, um, another very popular franchise. The Transformers, right? Like, obvious ripoff of the Transformers. And that's because that's exactly what the GoBots were. They were actually developed by a company called Tonka um, to be a direct competitor to Hasbro's very wildly popular Transformers toy line. Here's the problem, though. GoBots were a cheap knockoff of their Transformer counterparts where Transformers were made of metal and transformed into really cool things. GoBots, their, their cartoon was poorly animated. The GoBots themselves, the toys, were very small, and they were made of cheap and breakable plastic. And to make even matters worse, the things that they actually changed or transformed into left much to be desired for the imagination of a small boy. Transformers changed into things like tanks and jets and even dinosaurs. But GoBots, one of their main characters, changed into a red moped called Scooter. <laughs> and so, as you can imagine, anyone who was anyone growing up in the 80s had an entire arsenal of Transformers in their toy box. Except for me. Because I grew up in a family that uh, had less expendable income, we'll say. Um, GoBots became the go-to gift that I received during kind of the height of the transforming robot craze. To which I, I'm very grateful and thankful to my parents and anybody who ever gave me a GoBot. However, the inequality of my family's financial situation was very tangibly clear to me every time I would go over to a friend's house to play. Because my friends would play with Transformers like Optimus Prime and Megatron, and I had to make do with a transforming red moped named Scooter. You can understand that the battles were a little lopsided when I went over to play, right? And so at a very early age in my mind, I began formulating this metric for defining success based on GoBots, or more specifically, the toys that I owned. I believed um, in my young mind that a success equated to those friends who had the most and best toys, while myself and others like me who maybe came from families of more modest or meager means couldn't afford those, and so we were less successful. I couldn't have expressed it at the time, but I had adopted that popular 80s mantra that he who dies with the most toys wins. That's the way I had defined success in that moment. And here's the truth. As I've gotten older, the toys have changed. But that same philosophy or metric that I used to define success as a child remains now as an adult. Of course, the GoBots are gone. But as I've gotten older, I now uh, define my accomplishments by things like the size of the house that I live in, or maybe the kind of car that I drive, the size of the television, hello, <laughs> on my wall, the amount of money in my bank account, or maybe even the clothes that I wear. And from a very human and purely logical standpoint that, that makes sense because the stuff that I own is a tangible way for me to be able to measure 
what I'm worth, my value in life. So sometimes it's true that I, I measure my success based on what I own. And I imagine that if you're a red-blooded American sitting here this morning, there's probably been a time in your life where you've done the same thing. And of course, this is largely unsurprising to many of us because we live in a culture that practically force-feeds us this idea that our success and subsequent happiness is based on uh, getting more stuff in our life. In fact, social media, I would say, is one of the largest offenders in this area. I mean, think about it for a second. Companies now have the ability, in a way, to kind of break that fourth wall to be able to advertise directly to individuals' needs and wants based on their browsing history, how they're spending their money online, or even conversations that they're having with others. For example, Don and I had the good fortune of being able to go to Disney World a few months back based on the generosity of some people here at church. And here's the crazy part. In the weeks and months leading up to the trip, it was uncanny how we would be scrolling through our social media feeds and the number of Disney World ads that began to pop up on our phones every time we got on. And all of these ads were aimed at creating the idea in Don and I's mind that the success of our trip could be measured by the type of hotel that we stayed in by the number of trinkets and Disney doodads that we brought home with us, or perhaps the exclusive uh, experiences that we purchased while there. And I will say this, Disney, you were so close, man. I almost sold out for that breakfast with Darth Vader, but I finally, I said, no, no, I'm not going to do it. It's too much. And so not only do we live in a world that is constantly advertising directly to our needs and wants and telling us that you can have success in life if you own this. But there's another part inside us that we also have to contend with, and that's our normal human inclination to compare ourselves with others. I mean, think about this for a second. And again, social media is another area where this just inflames the issue even more in our lives. Because every day when I get online or I'm scrolling through my social media feed, I'm bombarded with what? Hundreds of possible envy-inducing pictures from friends and family, right? And so I like and share pictures about their beautiful new home that they purchased. I like and I share pictures of the exotic vacation they went on. I like and share pictures of their seemingly perfect family. And all the while, as I'm liking and I'm sharing, I'm liking and I'm sharing, what is running through my mind? I'm comparing my life to theirs. I'm looking at what they have and comparing what I have to determine who's more successful in life. And the inherent problem this morning, church, with measuring our life or basing the success of our life off our material possessions is that somebody is always, always going to be playing with Transformers when you've got GoBots. Because in other words, somebody's always going to have more and better toys than you do in this life. And so thus, when we pursue a life of meaning based on the stuff that we can accumulate, it creates a vicious cycle that enslaves us to this idea where we try to own things that ultimately end up owning us. We keep pursuing, I got to have next, I got to have next, I got to have the next best thing, the next thing. 
and round and round we go, and we're all involved when we take up that mindset of this, in this game of king of the hill that nobody can ever truly win. Unless your name is Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos, you're probably not going to win that game, right? And so we're caught up in this vicious cycle of trying to find success in life through our stuff. And so my question for us this morning is very simply this. How do we find balance in our lives with our possessions? Or more specifically, how do we own our possessions without our possessions owning us? And I think the answer is found, obviously, as all answers are, in God's Word. I think God understood and knew that as human beings, we were going to wrestle, myself included, very deeply with this issue of possessions. In fact, if you look through Scripture, you see over and over again that more than almost any other topic in the Bible, Scripture talks about this idea of wealth. For example, in Luke chapter 12, which will be our reading for today, Jesus uses a parable when talking to his followers to help illustrate a lesson about what true success looks like in the kingdom of God. And so I want to invite you this morning, if you have your Bibles, or perhaps you have your Bible apps, to turn to Luke chapter 12, and we're going to explore together what Jesus has to say on this important topic of money. And so as you're turning to Luke chapter 12, I want to take just a few moments, if you'll let me, to paint a mental picture in your mind about what's happening as we're arriving on the scene some 2,000 years ago at this moment to Jesus and his followers. Because Luke chapter 12, verse 1 says this, that meanwhile a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampling on one another. Now, Picture this for a moment. Jesus has arrived at this place in his ministry where he has achieved near rock star status. Because that term in the original Greek, thousands, literally means 10,000 people. And so the fact that it's used in the plural sense leads many theologians to believe that there could have been upwards to 50,000 people descending down on Jesus and his followers in this moment. They are, there's so many people that they're literally stepping on one another just to hear a word from the master. It's an entirely chaotic scene that's unfolding before Jesus. And so Jesus, perhaps sensing the fervor of the crowd, or perhaps even just desiring to help settle the crowd down, uses this opportunity to begin to teach the multitudes about um, life in God's kingdom. And so he begins instructing the people in Luke chapter 12 with these principles and ideas based in God's kingdom. And each idea seems to build upon the next to where Jesus is just gaining more and more momentum as he's speaking. And just as Jesus is approaching this crescendo of his message, something strange happens. Jesus is verbally interrupted by a spectator in the crowd with a personal request. And Luke details this odd exchange beginning in verse 13. So let's see how Luke describes this. He says, um, beginning in verse 13, Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on guard against all kinds of greed, 
life does not consist of the abundance of possessions. And so this is a strange interaction between Jesus and this man, because just picture this scene for a moment. There's some rando who is literally kind of squeezing and pushing his way through the sea of people to get to the very front of the crowd with the intention of purposely interrupting Jesus to have him settle an inheritance dispute. I mean, it is a strange interaction, right? I mean, at the very least, we could say this guy's got really, really poor timing. Or at the worst, we would probably say he is very indifferent to what Jesus is talking about, and all dude cares about is getting his. He wants to get paid, and he's going to see if Jesus can help him with that. And so Jesus dismisses this man's request outright. He essentially says to the guy, dude, I don't know who you think I am, but I ain't him. And so why Jesus says that, I think it's important in this moment that we understand why. Why did Jesus refuse the request? Because it's here that there's a lot of bad theology and doctrine that is built on the idea of wealth and material possessions. Jesus did not condemn the man for his wealth, and there was not a condemnation going forward even for the desire for more wealth. Instead, in this moment, Jesus is rendering an even more important judgment about the condition of the man's heart. He's talking to the man's heart because either as a direct result of this man's actions or because he was God incarnate, hello, and knew everything, Jesus was accurately able to discern that this man's outward actions was motivated by an inward belief that success could be measured by the acquisition of more stuff, namely his brother's inheritance. And so once again, there's this strange interaction and something surprising happens once again in the story. Because Jesus doesn't call for his security team and ask them to escort the man off stage, right? He doesn't call out to Peter, hey, Peter, get your sword ready, dude. Come cut this guy's ear off and get him out of here, man. Like, that, that didn't happen despite the fact that this man interrupted him in the middle of his message. Instead, Jesus doesn't just send this man on his way to languish further in his false belief system. But our Lord, our God and our Savior, shows incredible compassion to this man by warning him that you are in danger, sir, of being deceived by greed. And how many of us this morning are sitting here as a result that Jesus didn't just send us on his way, that he had compassion on us not to leave us where we were at, but to address some of the things that are going on in our lives. And that's what Jesus does in this moment for this man. And here's the amazing part. Jesus says this is because he understands the inherent hazard that wealth and material possessions present to the souls of men. Because wealth lies to our hearts. Or perhaps more accurately, I could say this morning that our hearts lie to us about wealth. Because Jesus elsewhere in his ministry had talked about the deceitfulness of riches. And he had talked about how the deceitfulness of riches can actually choke out the gospel in the life of a believer. And he said that in Matthew 13, 22. And so wealth tells us, uh, material possessions tell us, this is real life. 
This is true life. This is success if you can but possess it into your hand. It deceives us into believing that without it, our lives will be empty, that it will be boring, that we'll be unhappy on this earth. And it blinds our hearts to the true nature of success in God's kingdom. And like a cruel taskmaster, that wealth or that false belief about what wealth can provide enslaves us to a life measuring our success by the pursuit of things of which we own. And so to that end, Jesus says this in verse 15. He says, life does not consist of the abundance of possessions. In other words, Jesus is saying to this man at this moment, don't believe the lie. Don't allow yourself to be deceived by the subtle allure of stuff. Because the truth is, is that when we believe that lie, it leads our hearts down very dark pathways. Because greed almost always gives way to a spirit of covetousness. Greed almost always gives way to a spirit of idolatry. Where our hearts become more prone to worship the created than the creator. Where our hearts become more prone to worship that which is created instead of, Jesus, instead of the creator. And so Jesus' words are a warning to this man and it is a warning to me. And it is a warning to all of us who sit here this morning to hear what he has to say. That there is more at risk than just the inheritance. There is more at risk than just the money. More at risk than just the stuff. That indeed his very soul hangs in the balance in this moment. And so I think, church, one of the ways that we can begin to grapple with, one of the ways that we can begin to find balance with our material possessions is to begin to understand possessions how God sees them, how they are viewed in the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus goes on here to begin to tell parable. And I had to stop and ask myself, why did Jesus do this? I mean, when we see Jesus' words in this moment, he's pretty clear about what he's saying. He doesn't mince any words in this moment. And yet, he tells a parable. And I have to think, as I'm, this is again Nick's interpretation of what's happening here, so this is not in Scripture, but this is my interpretation, that perhaps this man just responded with kind of a blank stare, or one of those blink, blink kind of moments. Or perhaps this man even said, yeah, Jesus, that's cool, but how about this inheritance? Because I think Jesus maybe in this moment was perhaps rubbing his temples, guys, Guys, okay, let me listen to this story. Let me tell you this story. And so Jesus, the master storyteller, uses a parable to help illustrate for this man and for all who are listening that day some of the symptoms of a heart that's been diseased by greed. And so remember what we said earlier. A parable is simply a tale about a common item used to illustrate something that has deeper spiritual or moral meaning. And so Jesus begins telling his parable in verse 16. He says this, The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, This is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus of grain. And I will say to myself, You have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. 
Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? And this is how it will be for whoever stores, them, uh, stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. Jesus refers to this rich man as a fool. Why? What is it about this rich man's actions that made him a fool in this parable? I think, again, it's important that we distinguish that Jesus isn't condemning the farmer for having productive fields. Jesus isn't condemning him for having an abundance of grain. It's not bad when your business prospers. It's not bad when you receive a promotion and with it a pay increase in life. It's not bad when your investments increase in value. The evil of this parable is not the money itself. It's the heart behind it. He is not called a fool for being a productive farmer because God knows, church, that this morning and in our our, uh, city here in Slinger and Washington County and beyond, we can use much more successful farmers, much more successful businessmen and women who have a heart for God. Amen? So then why is he a fool? Why is he a fool? It's the question of this parable. And it says that not only is a fool, but God says that he stands to lose his own soul. In verse 20, it says, But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Other translations render that verse as, Your soul will be demanded from you. He is literally and tragically a damned fool in this moment. Why? He was a fool, I believe, after studying this, is because that he decided in his heart that he was going to use the abundance of his increase in a way that revealed what he truly valued in life. He kept building more barns. Going to build more barns. And even that in and of itself is not something that is evil. It's a logical response to an earthly problem. I got more grain, I got to have more barns to store it. And that would be okay if he said in response to it, I'm going to use this grain in a way that shows that God is my ultimate treasure. But look what he says in verse 19. He says, I will say to myself, Self, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. In other words, the way in which he plans to use this abundance that has been given to him says one thing, that my treasure is living a bougie lifestyle. That's my life. This is my treasure in this moment. This is what defines success, and my barns are the things that are going to provide that to me in this moment. And because of his short-sighted perspective, that he's only seeing the moment of the here and now, God looks at him and says, you fool. You are measuring your life based on time that you don't even have. And so Jesus, in this moment, then concludes his parable by clearly juxtaposing the rich man's definition of success and what God's kingdom defines as success. He says in verse 21, this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. Not rich towards God. It's an unusual saying. In fact, it's found in a few other places throughout the entirety of Scripture. And when we hear that, it can create some questions in our heart, like, 
okay, I, I hear you, Lord, but what does that mean? What does that mean to be rich towards God? It's unusual saying. But I think the meaning is clearly defined for us when we contrast it to the words that immediately precede it, right? Jesus says, um, whoever stores up for these things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. And so the meaning is that it is being rich towards God is laying up for ourselves anything that is not of this earth, but laying it up for the Lord. Being rich towards God is the opposite of treating yourself as though you were made for things and not made for God. Being rich towards God is the opposite of living as if life consists in the abundance of stuff and not in the abundance of knowing God. Because here's the truth this morning, church. Being rich towards God is knowing God. Knowing God is the greatest treasure, church, that we can ever possess in this side of eternity or the next. Knowing God defines everlasting success for us as followers. Knowing God defines what true meaning of life is. Knowing God is what gives us purpose. And Jesus made this very point at another stage in his ministry when he said in John 17.3, this is eternal life. This is life that you may know the one and only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Success in life, church, is not having more stuff. It's in our power and our ability to be able to know the living God of heaven and earth. And here's where the gospel, the good news of the gospel intersects with our teaching this morning, and it's this, that that treasure that is worth more than anything in this world that we can possess in our hearts and our lives has been made available to us in a way that moth and rust cannot destroy, that thieves cannot break in and steal, that is a free gift of God to anyone who calls on the name of Jesus Christ in faith. It is available to all through the good news of the gospel. And it doesn't matter what your age is or what your ethnicity is. It doesn't matter whether, you, whether you're wealthy or whether you're poor. It doesn't matter if you live in a big house or a small house. It does not matter if you have transformers or if you have GoBots. It is available to all. And that is the good news of the gospel, that through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the very vaults and storehouses of heaven have been opened to all who call on Christ's name. Knowing God is the greatest treasure that we can ever possess, church, and it is available to us in Christ Jesus. And so the parable of the rich fool in Luke 12 can be an encouraging and also challenging verse for us as listeners. However, the application of Jesus' words are risky business for a pastor. Because every one of us sitting here, I recognize, has at one time or another probably heard of or maybe even personally experienced a spiritual leader who has manipulated Scripture in order to cudgel, right, well-meaning believers into dropping a few more dollars in the tithe plate after service. I want to say this this morning, church, as honestly as I can, and implore you to hear my heart in this moment. I'm saying this as your shepherd and as one of the pastors here at Mosaic Church, that what I am talking about next is not a desire to slip my hand deeper into your wallet or into your purse. That my heart's desire, that Jason's heart's desire, 
is that as a church, we're inspired to live through radical generosity because God is our greatest treasure in life and not stuff. And so I take my leave or my, uh, my uh, cue from 2 Corinthians 9-7, which the Apostle Paul said this to the Corinthian church. Each of you must give as he decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And so church, this morning I say to you what I'm about to say is not designed to make you give out of compulsion, but rather to inspire you to radical generosity out of what God has told you to give from your heart. And I believe one of the ways that we can possess stuff without actually having our stuff possess us is by routinely examining how we're using the abundance of things with which we've been blessed. In other words, are we using our stuff to forward our own causes, to only spent for our own selfish needs or selfish gains, like the rich fool in the parable, or are we giving the very best of what we have back to God in order to bless others and to advance his kingdom? And so in Proverbs 3.9, it says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the best part of everything you produce. This is not Nick speaking. This is God speaking, that God has commanded us to give in this moment. And so how do we practically then examine how we honor God with our wealth? As I was thinking about this week, I was reminded of a middle school teacher who used to tell me, Nick, if you show me your check register, I can show you what you value most in life. Now, I recognize that there are probably people who are of a younger persuasion in here who have no idea what a check register is. So let me just briefly explain to you what that is. A long, 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 long time ago, people used to exchange goods or services for a piece of paper called a check that was assigned a monetary value. And then people would document those transactions in a little book called a check register. So I'd write down, you know, spend at McDonald's, X amount, date, and all that stuff. And so my teacher is essentially saying that by examining where I spent my money, or for our Gen Zs and millennials in here, what my spending history was online, my purchase history, that he could tell me where my heart and what I valued most in life was. Now, here's the truth. Checks and check registers have obviously gone the way of the proverbial dodo, but the principle still applies. Is that when we take time to intentionally review how we're spending our money, it can give us a snapshot in that moment of where our hearts are. Does all my money go to building bigger barns for myself, to eat and to drink and to be merry? Or am I giving the very best of what I have to honor God by giving to those that are in need, by giving to the local church, or by giving to other nonprofits? And how we honestly answer that question this morning, church, can expose what's going on in our hearts. And so I want to share with you this idea this is not God speaking. This is Nick speaking. Any of you who have taken premarital counseling with me know that I've shared this example routinely. And I don't say this to pat myself on the back. And I don't say this to say that you need to do it this way. But as your pastor, I want to give you an example of one of the ways that you can examine your heart and your finances. Every Monday night, Don and I have a time that's set aside for a time of devotion and prayer reading and Bible reading together. 
And in that time, we also examine our finances together. And people, when I tell them that, will say, well, that's weird. You read God's Word and you examine your finances together? Yes, and it's only weird if you see your finances as being separate from your heart of God. It's only strange if you view your finances as separate from what God has blessed you with. And so Don and I, every Monday night, we sit down and we look at our finances. And of course, yes, we got to pay bills. Yes, we got to buy groceries, all this other stuff. But we also take time to say, God, are there places where we're not using our money the way you've called us to? Are there people in our lives that you've asked us to bless that we can bless in this moment? It's an opportunity to intentionally review what's going on. And so maybe that's something that you can start with a spouse. Maybe that's something that you can start with accountability partner. But my encouragement to you today is this, church. Start. Start reviewing intentionally, how am I using my finances? Is it honoring me or is it honoring God? And as we do so, may God grant us joy, unadulterated joy, in finding a life that is not dependent upon stuff, but in the abundance of knowing our God. And may we be a church that lives in such a way that shows the world around us that God is the greatest treasure that we can ever possess. Once again, thank you so much for listening. If you live in Southeast Wisconsin, we'd love to connect with you at our weekend gathering. For service time, directions, and to learn more about our vision to ignite a movement of love that transforms our community and the world, visit us at mosaicwi.com.